Well, today we're in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 in your Bibles, if you turn there. In Mark 6, we'll see a few more scenes about the life and ministry of Jesus as we continue to work our way through this book we call Mark, the second book of the New Testament. But as you're turning there, I want to remind you or tell you about, if you don't know, a thread or a trend that came before in the Bible. Not so much what came before in Mark, but even what came before thousands of years before Christ, before his coming in the Old Testament. There's a thread, a trend repeated there of God's people frequently going astray. They turn away from God's commands. Sometimes they even turn to other so-called gods. And as far back as Moses, God had a prophet, or at times prophets plural, who would call the people back to their God. In fact, it was God calling his people back to himself through a prophet as he spoke to them and through them. So in Moses' day, the people would occasionally listen to that prophet Moses. They would occasionally turn and follow their, their Lord. But oftentimes they'd reject that call. They'd ignore the prophet. They'd even scorn the prophet. In later days, it got worse. God's, God's people would go astray for long periods of time. God would send multiple prophets, overlapping prophets, sometimes a single lone voice. But regardless, God's people often rejected that voice, that call. And not just ignored it, and not just scorned it, but forcefully silenced it. They forcefully silenced it. And we have to understand just how wicked this is. God was to be their God. And they, his people, they were to live in covenant, in fellowship, in bond with this God. They were to worship him and in him alone. And why not? He's the Lord and there's none besides him. Why not stay tight to him? He's infinitely good. And yet they would go astray. And yet, in God's mercy, he would send one of their own to say, turn again, turn back to me, relent, repent, remember. They would plead, they would preach, and sometimes for decades. Like this in Isaiah 55, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, spiritually speaking. It doesn't satisfy, it doesn't fill. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Delight yourself in your God. Again, sometimes the people would hear and turn for a time, and often they would reject it, and not just ignore it or or mock it, but forcefully silence it. We get a good summary of this in Hebrews chapter 11. No need to turn there. I'll read a little bit from it, though. There we read of prophetic rejection. Hebrews 11 doesn't just talk about that. It's been nicknamed the Hall of Faith for many years. 
because it lists many greats of the Old Testament, some of which had great success. It talks about Abraham and Moses and David and Samuel and the prophets, just listed generally. The prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, all good, very victorious. But that's not the whole picture. Some, it says, some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These are God's prophets. Prophetic rejection. You have to understand something of that long thread or trend of prophetic rejection before you get to Mark 6. It's just one or even the culmination of many that have come before. And yet up to this point in Mark, the responses to Jesus have been generally favorable. In chapters 2 and 3, you had the religious leaders bump heads with Jesus. There's certainly some opposition there. But otherwise, we've seen lots of healings. We've seen big crowds swarm Jesus. We've seen great interest. We've seen this group and that group respond to him with amazement and being astounded with awe. In the last chapter, chapter 5, We saw a man with a thousand demons in him be healed and restored and desire to follow Jesus. And this, a Gentile. We saw a woman who reached out and touched Jesus' coat and she was healed of a life-threatening disease. And Jesus told her, go in peace, all is well. We saw a little girl die, but then be raised to life by Jesus. And all who saw it were overcome with amazement. They don't get yet who this is, not fully. They don't get what all this means, not yet. But they know he's a prophet. They know he heals. Many believe he's good. So pretty much so far it's been... So far, so good. Maybe this prophet will be different. Maybe this prophet will be heard. Maybe this prophet, maybe they will finally listen to him. Well, let's see. Let's read the first six verses of Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took 
offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. This is the first of four scenes we'll look at this morning. A prophet returns home. Verses 1 through 6, a prophet returns home and is scorned. This is Nazareth. It's not where Jesus was born. It's where he grew up. And Nazareth was a small hick town, really. It was rural. It was not famous for anything. It was out of the way. It's not a place where people from there wear the name of their town like a badge of honor. You know, you might, if you're from that town, be asked where you're from and go, Nazareth. Or maybe uh, near the, the, the next biggest city, the metropolis that's closest to it. Refer to that one. I'm sure you can imagine towns like that. I won't name any that come to mind for me in case you're from there. <laughs> Who am I to speak of? I'm from Detroit. Need I say more? Not small, but kind of famous for not wanting to be there. You get an insight into Nazareth in John chapter 1, where Philip says to his brother, I want you to meet someone, Jesus of Nazareth. I think he's the one, the promised one of the Old Testament, the long-awaited one. And his brother responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Does anything good happen there? Is there anyone famous from Nazareth? Has anyone gone on to great things there? It's not just that outsiders thought that way about Nazareth. I'm sure the Nazarenes probably thought that way too. Most of us Americans have a, a sense of upward mobility. We're moving on up, if we apply ourselves to it anyway. We, we can get out of our small town and into the big city. We can make more money if we work hard enough and put our mind to it. Most of us especially my age and younger, you grew up hearing, you can be anything you want to be. When you grow up, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you apply yourself. But that would have been very foreign thinking in the ancient Near East culture that Jesus grew up in. They would have instead taught their kids to know their place, to respect cultural boundaries, to never presume to be something you're not. And what you are is where you're from. What you are is to whom you were born, mom and dad. Nazareth isn't just rural, it's also small, like other rural towns. About 500 people in Jesus' day. That's that's about half of what we have here in this building on a Sunday morning. That's small. Everyone knows everyone then. Everyone knows Jesus, even though he's been away for a year or two or so. They not only know him, they can list his siblings off the top of their head, as they do here in Mark 6. But that's getting slightly ahead of ourselves. Let's remember what started their astonishment. In verse 2, he went into the synagogue and began teaching it was Jesus' teaching that astonished them or startled them. 
We aren't told what Jesus taught. Mark summarizes Jesus' preaching ministry in chapter 1. That's a good place to start when thinking about what Jesus taught when he traveled around and taught. Chapter 1, verse 15, there Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's a summary of Jesus' teaching and probably what he talked about when he taught them there in Nazareth. Add to that the rumors that they no doubt have heard about his many miracles and what people are saying about him elsewhere. And they are astonished, but not in a good way. You can be astonished in a good way or astonished in a perplexing sort of way. In fact, verse 3 tells us that they took offense at him. They took offense at him. The Greek word behind offense here is scandalizomai. You don't have to be a Greek expert to hear the word scandal in scandalizomai. They were scandalized by Jesus in his teaching and, and who he was or thought he was. They're essentially wondering to themselves, who does he think he is? Has he forgotten where he's come from? In verse 2, when they start asking questions, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? These are not legitimate questions or curiosities. These are rhetorical questions. They're protests. Who do you think you are? Where did you think you got this stuff? Is this not the carpenter? The handyman of town? Have you forgotten who your dad was? A carpenter. That's who you are. You didn't grow up in a house of rabbis. You're a carpenter. Act like one. Is this not the son of Mary? It's interesting that they don't say the son of Joseph. That would have been a much more common way to identify someone, especially a man, with his father. But they don't say, isn't this the son of Joseph, but the son of Mary? It's possible that Joseph is dead at this point. It's also possible that this goes back to that rumor of a scandalous pregnancy. Before marriage, Mary winds up pregnant. And Joseph says he didn't, he didn't do it. Well, maybe they embrace that and say, he's the son of Mary. Whatever, it's not a flattering way to describe Jesus, the son of Mary. They say, don't we know his whole family? I mean, there's James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and the two sisters. We grew up with them. We know them. We see them all the time. We talk to them. Maybe all of Nazareth, or maybe just some of Nazareth, knows what we know from chapter 3 of Mark. We've been reading this together. That Jesus' family didn't believe in him either. Not at first. Not until later. Early on, his family heard of the great crowds and the commotion about Jesus. They heard what he was teaching and what he was doing. Chapter 3, verse 20. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. It's astonishing that Jesus' own family did not believe in him, but instead was embarrassed by him and tried to muzzle him. Whether the neighbors knew of the family's embarrassment and disbelief or not, 
The whole city, it seems, is astonished, offended, scandalized. And Jesus interprets all of this for us. He interprets it to them. In verse 4, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. That was a saying in Jesus' day. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. We have a similar saying today. Familiarity breeds contempt. That was the problem. That was the source of their disbelief. They were too familiar with him. And they assumed the Messiah, the promised one, the king who would come, the hope for the world would be majestic, impressive, with an unparalleled pedigree. And of course, Jesus actually does have a royal pedigree. Both Matthew and Luke give us genealogies that tie Jesus back to, well, to, to Judah and to David and that royal line. Mark makes no mention of that royal genealogy. He makes no mention of Bethlehem, David's city. It's just little old Nazareth. He emphasizes Jesus' lowliness because he's emphasizing that they stumbled on this. They couldn't see a Messiah, a king who would come from Nazareth, who would be one they knew, one they grew up with, one they saw fall down in sports or have B.O. or have a funny colic in his hair or something. They didn't believe. In verse 5 says, he could do no mighty work there. It's not because he lacked power. It's not because he needed their faith combined with his power to do something. It's because there was no point in doing any mighty work there. He wouldn't heal simply to impress. And if they've rejected his teaching and hence his identity, then they certainly wouldn't understand the significance of any healing that he would do. And he marveled because of their unbelief, verse 6 says. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He shook his head. Only two times are we ever told that Jesus marveled at something. Everyone around Jesus is marveling, for better or worse, but, but Jesus only twice is said to marvel about something. In Luke 7, he marvels at how much faith a Roman soldier has. And here he marvels at how they, they, his Neighbors don't have faith. He marvels at their unbelief. So we know what kind of prophet this is. We know he'll be a scandalous one. He'll be a rejected one. He'll be of that long line of rejected prophets, a prophet without honor, whom they will not listen to. And this scene in his hometown is really just a microcosm of the whole nation. It's a window into his own people generally. They won't receive him, just like the prophets of old. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
In John chapter 1, verse 11, we're just simply told, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Of course, Jesus is more than just a prophet, but He is one of the prophets. He's in that long line of rejected prophets. A prophet returns home to scorn, but secondly, his protégés are sent out. His protégés are sent out. Look at verse 7 and following. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics or two coats. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent or turn And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus has protégés or apostles, 12 of them. Men to whom he first said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is the first occasion of them going fishing. They're not just followers. Others followed him as well. But in Mark 3, they were designated as apostles, sent ones, special emissaries or ambassadors. In Mark 3, it says he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Here in Mark 6 is their first mission. And it's an extension of Jesus' ministry and an extension of his authority. It's not just the first missions trip. They're not just the first evangelists. They're extensions of Jesus' ministry. They're going out two by two. That's because there'll be legal witnesses. In the Old Testament, you needed two or three who would witness to be able to prove someone guilty. They would go out two by two Because they will have to testify of the unbelief that's around them when others hear that the kingdom had come near, that they should repent, and they eschew it, they ignore it, they turn it aside. He told them to take nothing, just a staff, no bread, no bag, no money. We're not really told why. It is reminiscent of the Israelites as they left Egypt and traveled in the wilderness, isn't it? They had sandals on. They had a staff. Each of the 12 tribes had a staff. Otherwise, no bread, no bag, no money. This isn't a command for missionaries today or preachers for that matter. When it says, take nothing, just a staff. We don't send our missionaries away with nothing but a staff. No, they need money. They need a bag. They need some bread. In fact, they should probably leave the staff at home. It might get misinterpreted. You don't want to show up with a stick. But this is unique. This is Jesus doing something new. In the old, there were 12 tribes. Here, 
12 apostles. Revelation 21 puts those together. 12 tribes in the old, 12 apostles in the new. Jesus is beginning something anew and yet doing it in an Old Testament familiar way as they travel through Jerusalem, uh, through rather Israel, preaching to God's people and calling them back to repentance once again. Some of the people they come in contact with will receive them, hear and believe and even support them. But verse 11 says, some will not receive you, will not listen to you. There's going to be a mixed response. And with those who will not receive you, Jesus says, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This was a Jewish tradition. When returning to their own land from foreign soil, before crossing over that border, they would often shake off the foreign dust from their clothes or their feet, as if to say that that the dust was defiled and needed to stay in their own land, not come into theirs, which was more pure. But Jesus is telling his disciples to do this as they travel through Jewish lands. It's a massive statement about what constitutes the people of God. It's belief. Belief. It's a massive statement about what's defiled. It's unbelief. Jew or Gentile alike. And so as they reject Jesus and his emissaries, Jesus says, shake the dust off their feet, leave their defilement right there, and move on. We'll likely talk more about the apostles and their first mission next week. The conclusion of that story is actually in the next section, which we won't look at today, in verse 30. But remember, Mark does this thing, the sandwiching technique, where he begins one story, tells another, then gets back to the first And so he's doing that very thing here as he introduces us to the 12 in their first mission. He won't come back to it until he takes us on a little detour. That's what's next for our focus this Sunday. A slight detour. One result that took place as a result of the apostles traveling around and teaching. Thirdly, verses 14 to 16, the opinions are multiplying. The opinions about Jesus are multiplying. Even before we get to verse 14 of chapter 6, we've been noticing that along the way, haven't we? Opinions about Jesus have been multiplying from the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 27, they say, what is this? It's a new teaching, one with authority. Chapter 2, verse 7, they say, why does this fellow talk like this? He blasphemes God. Chapter 3, verse 22, they say, He's possessed by Satan himself. Chapter 4, verse 41, the disciples in the boat, now in a calm sea, say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5, verse 20, everyone marveled. Verse 42 of chapter 5, they were overcome with amazement. And what we've already seen today, chapter 6, Verse 2 and following, where does he get this stuff? How does he do such mighty works? Who does he think he is? All kinds of questions. A few conjectures. 
And now, in chapter 6, verse 14, a few other interpretations enter the picture about who this is and what this means. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, heard of Jesus spreading his name, his, his works, no doubt, as well. Jesus' name had become known. Some had said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old, just a prophet. Even today, people have their own interpretation of Jesus. There are many Jesuses out there, aren't there? My friend Kevin DeYoung posted on his blog this week something I thought was very apropos to our study uh, of Mark's gospel account. This is a bit long, but it's, it's worth it, and, and it's easy to follow. He says, not every Jesus is the real Jesus. There's Republican Jesus who's against taxes and activist judges, and he's for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart, and he's for reducing our carbon footprint. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, and tells us how valuable we are. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, and drives a hybrid. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians. He determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so that we can feel sorry for him. There's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance and imagine a world without religion. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo and to stick it to the man. And there's good example Jesus who shows us how to help people and how to become a better you. Then Kevin DeYoung goes on to write, Then there's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they'd been waiting for, the Son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law. God in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, and proclaim good news to the poor. The Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord in God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. The Bible tells us that we are made in God's image. We must be careful 
that we don't make Jesus in our image. In our liking, we must get him right. But back to Mark 6. King Herod heard of Jesus' name spreading in verse 14. Notice King Herod. He really wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch. But he thought of himself as king of the Jews. He wasn't even really Jewish. His mom was half Jew. She was a Samaritan. But he thought of himself in that line of great Jewish kings who, who led God's people. And yet, while he was Jewish religiously, he was anything but culturally or morally. What did he think of this Jesus? Verse 16 When he heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. John, that's John the Baptist. He thought, John, whom I beheaded, had been raised from the dead. Whom I beheaded? We haven't been told that story yet in Mark. So now Mark takes us to a flashback, something that's happened earlier in the chronology. That's the fourth scene. His predecessor was executed Jesus' predecessor, John the Baptist, was executed. Now, Mark 1 did introduce us to John the Baptist and did introduce us to him in relationship to Jesus. He was the forerunner, the one to go before the Messiah, the promised one. You can read Mark 1 on your own, the first, I don't know, seven, eight, nine verses or so of John the Baptist and see there that He was the one who would call Israel to repentance and prepare the way for the one to come. The one of whom John said, his sandals I am not worthy to even untie. He is greater than me. The baton was passed from John, the last prophet of the Old Testament. That's how you should think about John. Not the first prophet of the New Testament. He's he's really the last of those Old Testament prophets. The baton is passed to Jesus. Mark 6 tells us about his gruesome death. How was John killed? Well, let me read some verses, and I'll just offer some comments comments in between as we read. Starting in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Philip didn't die. They just decided to do some wife swap stuff. Herod got his brother's wife, which was wrong. Especially for anyone who thinks themselves a Jew or king of the Jews. And so John, verse 18, had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him preach and teach, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod's a mixed bag, isn't he? Uh, He wants to heed John. He just doesn't have the guts to. He's not going to change anything, but he's curious. He's, He's open to at least listening. Not his wife. And when push comes to shove, he won't heed John. He'll appease his wife. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, no doubt an exotic dance, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. He vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and asked uh, and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter, on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her, much less be embarrassed. He said he would give it. She named it. He must give it. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. This is what they do with the prophets. This is a window into really the human heart and human rebellion and the universal problem. In some ways, it's as dark as it gets. And yet, it should be very familiar to us. I mean, why is there sin in this world? Because we want our own way. We want to go our own way. We want to be like God. As the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, has he really said what you should and shouldn't do? Are you sure he's good? If you eat of the tree, you can be like God. And so this is a window into the into the human heart, into human rebellion against God, against his word, against his servants, against his servant, plural. I mean, singular. That's what we see in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Let us throw off their restraint. Let us throw off their commands. Let us throw off our guilt. Let us be our own kings. And however they conspire, it's futile. He who sits in the heavens laughs. We try to throw off God's restraint. It's in every human heart, but it is futile. We can't. Eventually, we'll have to own up to it. Mark 6 makes sense of the rejection of Jesus. It makes sense of the rejection of Jesus. Do you have a place in your thinking for why Jesus was rejected? Notice that every response to Jesus is a strong response in the gospel accounts. Indifference is not an option. If you think indifference is a possibility in response to Jesus, keep listening to him because you have not yet fully heard him. If you think he's simply nice or a good guy, keep looking because you haven't yet seen him aright. He is not 
merely nice. Think of some famously nice guy in history or, or a character in a story. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a nice guy. No one wanted to kill him. I know one guy did, but he was crazy. Forget the one guy. No, it ruins the, the illustration here. But, but really, no one wanted to kill Reagan. He was too nice. He ate jelly beans. He had pink cheeks. What old guys have pink cheeks? And yet no one wanted to worship him. Oh, there are people who wish he'd come back and take over again, but, but no one dares worship Ronald Reagan. He's just nice. Here's one where people either bow or are set on killing. With John the Baptist, they beheaded him. And so this tells us where things are going in the rest of the story with Mark, with this gospel account we call Mark. Look at the last verse here of our section, verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and they took John's body and laid it in a tomb. Those of us familiar with the rest of the story know that sounds eerily familiar. The disciples took his body and they laid it in a tomb. That's where this is going. Mark 6 points ahead to the cross. Look over at Mark 12. Mark 12, we're almost done. Look over at Mark 12 with me to see a parable there that's so telling. And really it brings us back to where we started with that thread of prophetic rejection. Prophetic rejection. Jesus here tells a parable. He says in verse 1, a man planted a vineyard. Skip ahead. He leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant, almost like a prophet, to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent to them another servant, like a prophet. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, this landowner, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You see, that prophetic rejection is a big deal. And just as they did whatever they wanted to God's prophets of old, they will do, it seems, whatever they want to this prophet who comes and preaches with unique authority and sends out those who represent him with unique authority. It seems like they'll reject him, kill him, and do away with him. But Jesus, right after he tells this parable in Mark 12, quotes from Psalm 118 and says to them, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the stone 
The builders are the religious leaders. The stone was rejected. He didn't fit their idea of God's plan. But their rejection of the cornerstone was the means by which it would become the cornerstone. And God's plan is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. His church is built upon the cornerstone of his life and death and resurrection. And that's why Psalm 118 goes on to say, as Jesus quotes, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone which the builders rejected is not just sad or unfortunate, it's the means by which it became the chief cornerstone, the very foundation of a temple, a new temple, a new people. And it was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Can you see a savior from a hick town like Nazareth and think, that's the king? Can you see a Messiah who comes and his family rejects him and have a place for that in your thinking? Can you see one who came to his own and his own didn't receive him and still bow before him, still love him? Can you look at a crucified king and say, it is marvelous, it is marvelous, it is the Lord's doing. You see, Jesus was killed because of wickedness in this world an opposition to God's ways. He was killed to be silenced and be put away. And yet, Jesus had to die in the plan of God that he might be, well, he says in chapter 10, verse 45, a ransom for many. He came not to be served like so many kings are. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for sin, a payment for it, that he would be a substitute for our punishment. That he would die so we would live. That he would bear a curse so that we might have life and life eternal. He bore the Father's wrath that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. Oh, I know it seems foolish to some of you in here. It seems like something you get tripped up over and distracted by and not the kind of Savior you want. But the Apostle Paul says we preach Christ crucified. That is a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. By the way, Mark 6 also makes sense of Christian persecution in this world. Did you know even today, a hundred million Christians are persecuted for their faith? Do you know how many died in the last year? Google it. You shouldn't be aware of what's happening in in other parts of this world and not be surprised, even though it's horrible, horrifying. Not be surprised that God's voice is being silenced to the best of their ability, but it will not be silent, will it? So Mark 6 also motivates us about our mission. It's got to spread. It's got to get there. We got to proclaim. We got to say, repent, turn, take him at his word, believe, and receive his grace and mercy. 
Mark 6 shapes Christian experience and Christian ministry. We serve a crucified king. We're not about glitz and glam. We're about Bible and prayer and fellowship and singing together before an awesome God. We're not here for a show. Mark 6 reminds us of the Christ that we serve and the path that we follow. Mark 6 also warns us, doesn't it, Christian? That familiarity can breed contempt. Familiarity can breed contempt. It's possible to have just enough of Jesus to be inoculated. To be inoculated. To be, eh, so-so about him. Disinterested. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and these things are, the things of the Bible, the things of the Christian life are so commonplace. You can do them in your sleep. You can say his name and yawn. Are you still awed by this Savior? Do you stand in awe of this Jesus, not your own making, but this Jesus? Are you used to what used to awe you? Let us stick close to him. Let us ponder who he is and pray to him often and praise him much and deeply. And let us talk of him to each other to stir up love and good works and worship. Let us talk of him to each other in awestruck, in slack-jaw ways. He's the Lord, and there's none besides him. This is our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one. Yes, who is also the King of kings and Lord of lords, before whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, we ask for your help indeed to trust him more, to see him clearly, to love what we see, and to thank him often for it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your mission. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation you've given us. We pray that would spread here this morning. We pray for those who haven't yet received that glorious forgiveness and intimate communion that we know we want them to see and believe we don't want to marvel at their unbelief we don't want Jesus to marvel at their unbelief and father we pray that we would stick close to our Jesus rather that he would stick close to us that he would abide with us we thank you for the union that we have in him and the communion that we share with him. We pray and rejoice in his name together today for his sake. Amen.